Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is the great genius Rene Redzepi, the owner and uh, chef at Noma, uh, which uh, has uh, been called the best restaurant in the world. Uh, I've eaten there, and it is certainly, uh, if it's not the best restaurant in the world, it's really, really, really close if there is such a thing as uh, a best (laughs) restaurant. And uh, Rene is someone who's long held my fascination. Uh, Jeff Gordonaire's amazing book, Hungry, that came out this year. Jeff was on the podcast. It was all about about four years he spent with Rene. And um, Rene's in Copenhagen right now, having recently reopened uh, the restaurant. So I just want to start. Rene, how is it going? Uh, You're in like one of the few places in the world that handled uh, COVID correctly. So how does it feel in (laughs) Copenhagen right now? And how does it feel uh, as you are uh, back to doing the thing that you do? Yeah, yeah. You know, to tell the truth, it's a big bag of mixed emotions and feelings about the whole thing. Because on one hand, we're safe in Copenhagen. Yes, our government dealt with this situation so impressively. I mean, we practically everything is returned to normal. Uh, yes, we still cannot go to a discotheque or a club and there are no big concerts and stuff, but more or less every everything else is open. The restaurants are doing well. People are busy. Even now, tourism has started. We're seeing Germans in the streets now. We're seeing Spanish people. and So it's it's optimistic. I would even go as far as saying as uh, you know, some people are taking a little bit too optimistic now. It's, it's as if this thing is over to a lot of people. And, right. uh, and so, so that is definitely, you see that now when people are actually queuing at places, you know, they used to, let's say a month and a half ago, there would be that distance that was required. And because our numbers just kept going down, people are laxing on these things. And so that's a little bit weird. And then on the other hand, the restaurant's open. We're doing well. We're busy. We have opened with uh, two-thirds of capacity. We have to do that because after midnight, there's a curfew uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Denmark. I mean, you can be outside, but in no restaurants, no bars, no nothing can be open after midnight. So, you know, we can't do the usual seating that we do because we need everyone to be out by midnight. So we do, you know, 75% of the guests that we usually do, and we're full. It's packed out. We are a 100% local restaurant. It's funny and amazing at the same time, but also a little bit, you know, wild and strange to suddenly have uh, the regular Danish person eating out and not just the traveling foodie coming from, from far away places. Still, still I must ima- I imagine that those people, as you say, the regular Danish people coming in, uh, it's still a big deal to them, right? It's still they're finally getting to come to Noma. And, and that must, Are you kidding? I, I imagine yeah. that, yeah, fascinating <laughs> to you, right? Yeah, it's so funny. We, I mean, we've been open 17 years. And, um, I mean, it, it's a respectable amount of time. And, and you have people, you have young people that are like 35, and, and they're like, well, I, I've been wanting to eat here since I was 20. <laughs> and uh, finally... Uh, 15 years later, they, they, they have the opportunity to get a table. And, you know, that's, of course, a huge responsibility and, and a joy as well to be able to do that. But on the other hand, I have to say this. On the other hand, I'm seeing all my colleagues around the world. You know, let's just take America. And you, I'm seeing how my colleagues yeah. are struggling, just basically getting by. People are so upset. They're so angry. Um, I mean, I, you, can, you can actually go to work, and on the way to work, you have a cup of coffee, I swim in the harbor, and I go to work, and, you know, we start working together, and you, and you can have this feeling of guilt that why do we, why, you know, is it okay to do so well as we're doing when, when I see my colleagues are just completely, completely struggling and uh, you know our trade right now worldwide is almost like as if we're watching the the titanic and whoever gets out on their rescue boats that's that's what's going to be left but as a whole um it's it's sort of on disaster course you know and it's hard to watch that when you're just sitting here in the cold nordics and uh you know small little country and things are going well and i mean it's going so well that that even when it's going bad people aren't noticing it you know because (laughs) <laughs> it, 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 people just 
have it. Every have people here just have everything. Uh, so there's a guilt. Uh, that's what I'm trying to say. And it, that's a strange. I, well, thing I understand we that strong guilt. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I understand the, the guilt, but also because it also feels to me. I had um, the great songwriter Jason Isbell on the podcast a few weeks ago. He's been a friend for a long time, and he he was talking about he recognizes his role, which is he's sort of a leader in a certain way for a group of, of people. And, and, and I imagine for you, Renee, you know what you, you know what your place is in the firmament of the restaurant in the business. You know, um, there's mm-hmm. very, there are very few people who occupy the, the space you do as, as a mentor, as a leader, as a touchstone. And so how do you deal? I mean, you know, uh, as you know, I'm, uh, long time close with Dave Chang, who I know is a dear, dear friend of yours. Are you talking to these people? Are you trying to coach? Are you listening? Are you engaged with their struggle? Uh, absolutely. Uh, on a regular absolutely. basis? I mean, absolutely. I talk to as many people as I can. I think mentorship, I don't know how much I have to offer, you know, because, you know, uh, some of these situations that people are in, they're so grave and so worrying and so troublesome that it's like, it's sort of people are about to lose everything. And, um, and I don't know in, in a, in a business sense, I don't know what I can offer, like, uh, what sound advice I can say. So I'm trying to just focus on positivity and staying like, uh, a thinking and positive energetic person that, uh, that needs to understand that we're going to get through this. Everybody's going to get through this. And the more we're just going to, the more we can tell ourselves that as long as we have our health and our good spirit and energy and our friends around us, good things are going to come at the end of all of this. So that's what I'm focusing on when I'm talking to people is just giving them a sort of an upbeat yeah. moment and trying to uh, stay positive and give them some good news and some sunshine through the telephone and tell them that, that I genuinely, genuinely believe obviously that, that, it's a terrible, frightening moment and a painful moment full of, of distress and anxiety and anger, but we're going to come out of this stronger. Uh, and so it's, it's just about focusing on that. And, and, uh, and then we'll get through this very, very terrible period, which, you know, who, yeah, who, found, who knows how long yeah. that will last. No, of course. I, I, I will say one thing I, um, a restaurant friend called me yesterday and he's thinking about closing one of his two places. You know, if the landlord won't do the right thing on the deal. And, and I found one thing that I could say to him and I saw that it actually let his shoulders kind of settle in a good way was I just said, you really have to own the fact that this isn't your fault. This isn't uh, the kind of failure where you can blame yourself. This is the world spend on attack. Cause you know, part of failure, don't you think Renee, when you've been through failure or difficulty is there's that part of it where you, blame yourself in a way of course Uh, of course and here i think people can at least not blame themselves you know like like the difference when when you had i mean the difference when the norovirus thing happened for you and the difference between when it seemed like it might you know when, when people were saying it was your fault versus when you were able to identify hey this actually was not our fault uh, yeah, don't exactly. you think that, that 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 shifted things for you in a way on your comeback yeah, definitely. But still, it's very hard. And, uh, and you know, particularly now when, when everybody, a lot of people are losing uh, the job and they might not have money to pay the rent and so on. And then the frustration, anger, every little thing is just a giant disaster for me. You know, the smallest little thing that you shrug your shoulders off a year ago, they're like, and disasters that just infuriate you and, and you sense that. So it can be a little hard to uh, to sort of burn through some of that uh, anger and, and find your mental space where you say it's okay. The way I t- tell people is, is you know, it's an uh, advice I got from Yvonne Chenard, the founder of Patagonia. And uh, he said, you know, there's, no, there's simply nothing wrong with turning back. It's, it's not turning back. It's just turning around and then moving forward uh, in a different way. Huh. Uh, and so I love that. So I oh, love that's that. great. Yeah. yeah. I love that advice. And, and I think 
that's how we should all look at these things right now. There, you know, yes, you might have had four restaurants and suddenly you only have two, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a setback or it's like going going backwards. It's it's going in a different direction. And let's see what that brings us. And I think that sort of energy and positivity and, you know, way of looking at, at things can will make the difference in the long run for your creativity and your opportunity um, in your in your opportunity grasping moments, you know, because there will be plenty of them. And are you able to take them in? Then you grab them. You can take them. I say, okay, here's a moment. I need to grab this now and, and see where that goes. And so if you, if you stay somewhat energetic and positive, you will be able to see them once they suddenly start occurring uh, to you. So I'm focusing a lot on that. That's my main goal through all of this is steer the ship of Noma with the team, uh, the company that we are, with all the people, just to stay positive through this. Because, you know, it, it, as long as we do that and we stick together, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. You, you made me think of a few different things just now, one of which is, did, did you ever see the documentary uh, about that climber, Free Solo? Yeah, the crazy guy who, like, climbed uh, yeah. Yeah. with nothing yeah. on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, there was that moment when he went and he, he turned around the one time when he had everybody there in the film, and he just decided, no, I'm just going to turn back. And it was an amazing thing to watch. And if anyone who's listening to this hasn't watched it, I don't want to spoil it for you, but watch it. You'll think of this thing uh, Renee is uh, talking about. But, Renee, here's what I want to ask you about. When you first reopened, I have a bunch of stuff. You know, I've been, I, I wanted to say this at the beginning, but I'll say it now. You know, you're responsible for one of the greatest weekends of my life. My, one of my kids graduated from college, and uh, as a gift I was able to arrange, we went to Copenhagen for 48 hours. And uh, I got to see your wife, Nadine, gave me a list of what to see and do in Copenhagen, and then we got to come to Noma. And th- what, looking at Copenhagen, Denmark, through your eyes, through the prism of what you guys see and what you've built and all the connections you have, and finishing at Noma, the most warm-hearted, big-hearted, open, inviting place. It is, um, it's 48 hours that I will remember the rest of my life. It was just so perfect. And you started to talk about it a little bit, but what does it feel like for you to know that people are anticipating that possibility? Because nothing lives up to the hype. But the, the weekend I had in Copenhagen and your restaurant did live up to the hype for me. And uh, <laughs> for my child, too, my grown kid, you know. And, and, and what is the, does it feel like pressure to you? Um, obviously not the same pressure that your friends are going through when their restaurants are collapsing. But it's a different kind of pressure as an artist, right? Mm-hmm. As an artist mm-hmm. to have to deliver this experience because it's not just the food, right? Can you talk a little bit about how you get yourself up for it every night, how you get your team up for it? Because you guys are doing this every night. But for me, yeah. I traveled halfway across the world. Uh, I, I didn't have the time. I was in the middle of shooting my show, but I took the time. What, what does it feel like from your perspective to be in the process of creating this experience uh, for people and, and, and keeping yourself in a place where you're open enough to be sort of open to what's happening. Yeah. I mean, what you're talking about here is, um, is just one of the most difficult things that we deal with on a daily basis. And um, I'll tell you what, you know, <laughs> success is an incredible, incredible, marvelous, amazing thing, but success is outrageously limiting as well for creativity, how you think, Every time there's something to lose, it stifles you a little bit. And you might tell yourself, no, it's not. Yeah. I'm still waking up every day as if I have nothing to lose. Da, 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 da. It's bullshit. Um, you don't play around like there's nothing to lose. Like it was in the beginning where you just didn't care, you know. Let's try this. Let's try that. And this worked. And suddenly, with each of these small successes or big successes, you also get defined and people want those successes from you. They expect, they might have read something. So for us, it's, it's, a, it's a constant process of unlearning, uh, whilst at the same time, yeah. uh, you know, learning. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, it's it, it's a dual uh, uh, thing that happens there. Just shut off everything you, you thought, um, you know, that was important to you like a decade ago, five years ago, last year even, and just uh, start again. And, you know, I'm saying that, and it sounds very sort of... Uh, like, like as if we're doing it on a regular basis. I mean, we're doing it somewhat, but to actually say, hey, listen, Noma, let's just shut the whole thing and we'll find an old warehouse somewhere in the middle of nowhere and let's see right. what happens. You know, that's basically what we should be doing if we truly, genuinely just want, want to kind of, hey, here's beer crates. Let people sit on beer crates to, to begin with. We'll just cook something uh, and, and it's going to be what it's going to be, but that will guide us you know we're we're it's it's complete sort of uh creative freedom again and and it's not expensive either it's just whatever it is you know uh and so we deal with this all the time man uh, and it's not easy we talk about it all the time and we talk about the fact that being productive um and having production doesn't equal creativity i genuinely believe that right in that that for us Having daily production, uh, uh, you know, in terms of mise en place and chopping onions and cooking the fish for the guest is, uh, is really taking away for creativity at the end. And I, I be- also believe that for every good idea that comes out of you, you need 10 good ideas coming into you. And that's up to yourself or up to me as a leader to ensure that we continuously fill ourselves with fresh knowledge, information, impressions, so that that one thing can come out. And that's very, very hard when you have a lot of production always uh, hanging, lurking over you. Because, yes. you know, ultimately you should just be, we should all just be like spending eight, ten months of the year just reading, traveling, meeting things, and then have this great release two to four months a year where it's everything that just comes out at the perfect moment. But it isn't like that. You know, we're open 12 months uh, a year. We're open five days a week. There's a lot of production. So so I don't know, man. I, I don't know if that answers your question. We deal with this pressure and we, we, we are very Well, it answers of the question. Well, well, it raises the deep, it raises the question in a way. It, it, it adds to the question. And this is something I think about all the time. Like I was, I was writing yesterday and, and the writing was hard. Uh, the production part, right? Writing. And I realized yeah. it was because I was a little bit empty of stuff. And I, there was a book I wanted to read. And I just, I made myself take a long fucking walk. And then I sat down and I read for like four hours. I just read a book, a novel, you know, something that wasn't direct, that didn't have a direct impact on my work. Yeah. But I knew, yeah. I knew I needed to fill up. I didn't, I couldn't empty yeah. out because I needed to fill up. And, but that's yeah. part of, that's like a fucking discipline, right, man? Like it's not... Because our instincts, when we're people who are productive, is to keep being productive. How did you train yeah. yourself to do the other thing, to take yourself away, to take the walk, or to read the book, or to listen to the piece of, uh, of music? Because I think for other artists, it's important to hear mm-hmm. that guys like you do that, too. But it, you go, uh, for me, I learned it through terrible burnouts. Uh, you know, uh, terrible, uh, numbing, uh, sort of creative burnouts, even so even uh, a personal burnout too, where you're like, you're like, and then when you get beyond that, you're like, what is the root of this? You know? And, um, and, uh, and you realize you don't have enough time to do what you love. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's why any creative endeavor at first, the creativity is huge. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter if you're like, uh, you know, at first it's just an explosion. Suddenly it empties out. Because everything that you have built, uh, everything that you've learned and you have in you, it just it came out. And then suddenly, oh, you know, what's next? And you can't figure it out. And, and so you can fill, fill, fill that uh, storage up again. You just need time. And so for me, I just learned it from, from uh, really you know, waking up and thinking, shit, it's as if there's nothing left. Uh, and then uh, being able to... Um, through friends and, and, you know, just personal reflection, uh, realize, okay, you, you, uh, you know, what's the core of this? And then I think I've been able to find it. It's not easy. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I still have many burnouts, uh, 
uh, yeah. almost hourly. No, uh, you know, it, 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 so it, it, there's hills and valleys daily. Uh, but uh, but in the big uh, big picture thing, I think we are definitely we are almost 20 years in, two decades in, and it's a long time to be uh, very intensely creative. Um, and um, we soon, I myself, my team that's around me, we need more time to be creative. And I, I, I honestly, genuinely, the Corona uh, uh, virus. COVID-19 has really made me completely realize that the future for Noma is, is uh, having more time. And so this probably means um, less days open, maybe many, many months less open so that, you know, we can say, let's go and study uh, um, uh, vegetarian cuisine in the old Anatolia uh, and Lebanon and temple uh, vegetarian cuisine in Japan. And we spend three months together on that. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and that's, uh, that's my dream now is to get to that point. And uh, I think this reflection time that we've had in, during COVID-19 has made me realize I, I just need to get there. I need to get to that point. I love that. Uh, I love that I- idea. And I know, I recognize everything you're saying, uh, at the end of every season of the show, you know, I'm so, I mean, I'm just beyond burnt and I don't know how I'm going to be able to write, <laughs> think of it. And then I just do my journaling and I slowly, you know what I mean? I slowly let myself decompress and walk the earth and ride my bike and hope that I find it again somehow. Uh, and, yeah. and the idea of you being able to put in breaks, well, it's funny, right? Cause you were taking a break with your family for three months anyway, before COVID. So you had already yeah. started to have this idea, I think, pre-COVID, right? Absolutely. We were on a, on a family uh, vacation, uh, uh, you know, at Noma. Now we have a three-month paid leave for anyone who's worked uh, seven years or more. And, um, and, you know, I'd never done that uh, 17 years in, so I thought I'm going to do it now before the kids are too old and they don't want to hang out with their dad anymore. And uh, we were in Mexico in the middle of the Yucatan in a small hacienda uh, with some friends. And um, we got, you know, called home like three weeks early or something, sitting there um, in with uh, some yeah. crappy Wi-Fi and trying to listen to all the, the, the press release and press conferences from our Danish prime minister. It was really, really incredibly nerve-wracking to be in, actually. So... But, you know, obviously, uh, for me, what a perfect moment, at least, to have had to practically the entire vacation so that I had extra mental space to to come back and say, okay, this is the direction. Let's yeah. do this now. You had the chance yeah. to be clear-headed in, in a way. When, when you first reopened, you reopened as, and then I want to go backwards into your history. I have a bunch of, of questions about how you got here for people who aren't as familiar with you as, uh, as, as I am. But um, when you first opened, you opened as a, a, a burger, you know, with just doing hamburgers for everybody, cheeseburgers. And yeah. Renee, I went back and watched the documentary again. And the first shot in the documentary is of your mother making burgers. Uh, it's the first shot of your mother in the documentary is she's mm-hmm. over that tray of burgers. If you talk about the kind of selfless food service that she did. And I just wonder if you could talk about what that kind of food means to you. And if you were consciously echoing your mother and, 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 and what she did uh, when you did that. Yeah. Wow. I mean, uh, to tell the truth, um, now that you say it, I do remember in that documentary that my mother was there with the hamburgers and, you know, for most of her life, her job has been uh, working either uh, in a cashier or she's been sort of a, a, a I guess, a cook uh, at um, juvenile facilities, juvenile sort of, um, what do you call them, prisons, I guess, uh, or um, for homeless people. And in this case, she was cooking burgers for, for a homeless shelter. And uh, yeah. when we opened up, and then Noma, at first, I was very, very conscious of the fact that 
it, it well, it just felt wrong to open up. And here we have the fine dining menu. You know, we've all been in a lockdown. Please come and taste our 18-course menu. <laughs> I didn't feel like it myself. I, I genuinely, I was like, this is so stupid. We should be focusing on opening the doors to everyone. It's about, you know, you, you hadn't seen a person for almost three months. You hadn't been with anyone. You hadn't high-fived or hugged anyone. And so... Right. We just wanted to do something where, where people got together and got to enjoy Noma. And as we, as we started planning that, we also, we generally just thought, what will bring people here, everyone? And, you know, at first we were like planning sort of a, a crudité dish or, a, you know, a sort of a Noma-esque uh, wine bar yes. offerings. And at a certain point, we realized if we do that, we're just going to cater to everyone who's coming here already. I mean, how can we make everybody comfortable and say, okay, uh, you know, they're cooking for me. And, uh, and, and that's why the burger started, because the burger is the common denominator for, uh, for what people like. And uh, when we opened the burger on the opening day, we thought to ourselves, maybe we'll sell 300. Well, you know, we had like 5,000 people drop by on opening day uh, wanting a burger. Wow. And we ended up selling thousands of burgers on a daily uh, basis. And um, we had everyone from, uh, you know, the bank manager parking his Tesla to uh, um, young uh, vegans uh, waiting for a, a vegan burger, standing in line for hours. Uh, it was just everyone came to the restaurant and we served, we were open five weeks, four days a week, and we served 45,000 people. That's what equivalent of two and a half years of, of work normally uh, at the restaurant. Incredible. And it was, uh, but it was a party. I mean, it was amazing. You, you know, we were, everybody was doing their thing and standing in line perfectly. And uh, it was just such an incredible vibe. This sense of community feels like something that's crucial to you because this goes back to the question I asked about what it feels like when you know people are coming to have the greatest night of their life because, and that's the one part of it you didn't, and it feels to me like when you walk into Noma as a guest under any circumstance, you're welcomed in a way, it's theatrical, but it doesn't feel like it's performative. It feels like it's heartfelt. It feels like you're trying to connect everybody, like the diner to the waiter to who, who's the chef to everybody working uh, in the place, to the foragers that we know because we hear about how they found the stuff. How did you mm. come to that as an idea, Renee, of this, that a restaurant could be a place where you're extend, truly extending this feeling of family and friendship, even in such an exclusive environment? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's not that uh, difficult because when we opened 17 years ago, I was 25, but I had, uh, I had at that time already been in the industry for more than 10 years. I started when I was 15, and I had already eaten way too many three-star Michelin, two-star Michelin, fine dining meals to be so incredibly tired of the formality. You know, I worked in these restaurants, too, and I would see waiters come, come to work on their bike, completely middle-class people, you know, uh, speaking, uh, having a certain vibe. And then they would wear the uniform and then it was like <laughs> transformation and it was be right. and now it would be this great act. And, um, and it was, it was just, I, I just, I just I couldn't take it. Uh, and, uh, and so, you know, this, this idea that, Oh, I'm going to a fine dining meal and there everybody's the perfect example of, yeah. uh, themselves somehow. And uh, there's no room for personality. It's, it's so robotic. Uh, it can be. It's not every place, obviously. And, uh, and so when we opened up 17 years ago, and this to an American, I, I'm sure, and especially in these days, sound like, you know, that, that it doesn't really add up in this, this fact that we open up and, you know, oh, let's take the tablecloths away. And that might sound like nothing today, but back then it was like a real thing. You're like, what? You're taking the tablecloth away. You're not a fine dining restaurant. It was like, wow. Right, you right. Know, it's, uh, but it doesn't make sense to talk about it today because it's just so commonplace. To me, an example, another example was 
Alain Sandorans, one of the greatest chefs uh, in Paris in the 60s and 70s, you know, he was completely, he was outraging the Parisian foodie clientele because he put coriander in the beurre blanc, you know, and right. uh, in the butter, yeah. French butter sauce. I mean, how on earth could he put coriander in it? And today, there's coriander on every single menu in, in, uh, in, uh, right. in Paris. So it doesn't make, you almost can't believe it, believe it but... But it was so revolutionary years, at the time. And were you conscious no. that this is a revolutionary move? Or were you just like, I want to do it this way, so I'm doing it this way? No, not at all revolutionary. It was just, this is how we're going to do it. This is what I feel is right. The chefs will serve the food. I can't uh, stand hearing uh, these long, long, long lectures on the food. I don't want to hear uh, the, you know, the winemaker's dog's uh, name is... Uh, uh, Fido and you know blah 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 all these things that nobody can remember. I just want people to explain to it if they, if it was their friend, like just say something. What are people eating? Feel it out. Are people into the Fido story? And is that genuinely you know because they they truly know wines? Because if they don't, then nobody will remember anyway. It's just uh, an interruption of sorts, you know. And so those were some of the things. I mean. Another another thing that was interesting 17 years ago, we were, we're <laughs> it was so funny because we, we um, you know, we banned smoking in restaurants. And so 17 years ago, that was like such a big deal in Copenhagen that people would leave the restaurant because they couldn't smoke at the table. And today you're like, what? 17 years ago? It's not even that long. But yeah, people were, were just smoking. And, and so, yeah, I, I guess that's, some of the stuff that we made of it has followed uh, followed us to where we are today. We are, of course, a much more accomplished version, a polished version uh, of um, of the very seed that we were uh, founded on. Mm-hmm. And today, Copenhagen has been transformed so that you know, back in the early days, I mean, we would just put on this leaf that we found in a bush somewhere. And people would be like, oh, my God, you know, uh, it was as exotic as, as a zebra meat or something. Um, huh, whereas yes. a lot of, yeah, it, it, you know, just the whole feeling of it. I'm sitting here, no tablecloths, and they have fur on the chair, and I'm eating with a dagger, and um, they're eating all these weird herbs. So, so now, today, all these weird herbs are commonplace in Copenhagen. You're not worth your dime as a cook if you don't know these herbs. Whereas, you know, 17 years ago, it was like there was two people in, in town that could find them for you. This leads to that idea. No, this leads to that idea uh, that, that all around Copenhagen, when you walk around Copenhagen or bike around Copenhagen, you see, yes, you're saying, oh, this change has happened. But, I mean, you're largely responsible for this change because all around Copenhagen are people who have bakeries because they came from you or restaurants that they learned from you and then opened the restaurants. and. Does this feel to you uh, like natural, just a great economy? How much of this was conscious? Because that's the other part of it is this welcoming, this, this idea that you could, I watched that, you know, I've read in Jeff's book and then watching the documentary, you know, your Saturday night experiments where you're, you're getting people to practice taking huge risks. Then I loved the one person, you know, you show uh, somebody cooking a dish that's almost right. You give them instructions to go back and try again. Someone else fails. Someone else knocks it out of the park. And then it also seems like, Renee, you're not so possessive that then you hoard all their talent. It feels like you're willing to say to someone like Sanchez, hey, you're ready now. Go open your restaurant. I'll help any way that I can. How much of that was conscious, too? Or because it it, it feels there are some people who really want to hold on to everybody talented. Yeah. Well, I mean... um... First of all, at a certain point in my career, I've had some fantastic mentors, but I also had a moment where uh, I left the restaurant and it was a terrible experience. You know, I left and people sort of, you're almost like a stranger to them. And that's not that uncommon, you know, sort of you're like left out and you leave and just stay away. Now we are a competitor, you know, used to be colleagues and next day you're a competitor. And people oh. might get jealous of some sort of success. And so I had a very, ter- I had a terrible experience and I just promised myself never to be that. And honestly, that's what happened. 
terrible experience, a personal emotional experience. And I said, no way. If people, they leave the restaurant and they do it in a fantastic way, in a sound way, in a way where we are, you know, high-fiving each other on the way out, I'll do everything I can to help them. And we should be a place. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's a very, very tough place to work. We work a lot. You don't get to be the best um, by not working and working your ass off. But right. um, I wanted to make sure that people had, at least at the end of their stay, the confidence to do whatever they felt like doing. And so, for instance, uh, with Rocio Sanchez, who is a brilliant cook here in Copenhagen, and yes. uh, she worked with us for many years in the test kitchen as well. So creative, so talented. And I'm sure that if she, you know, put her finger up and said, hey, uh, I need an investor for a fine dining restaurant, people would be all over her. But she decided, I'm going to do tacos. And, uh, and so in Denmark, doing tacos, I mean, you're talking about a place. <laughs> tacos is like, uh, you know, we're still at the level of, uh, of the, those hard shells you buy in the supermarket. People don't even know what yeah, it is right. here. The representation of, say, Mexican food and culture is uh, seen through the lens of bad Tex-Mex, for instance. Uh, in, uh, so for her to do that was just so radical and different. And now she's hugely successful and, f- frankly, uh, responsible for giving uh, Danes a, uh, a different view on, on what Mexico is in terms of food and, and its culture. And, uh, and I just really love that, that people uh, can be confident enough to say, hey, I've gone through this whole motion of fine dining and training myself to this perfection, but what I genuinely want to do is just I want to serve tacos for people. And, uh, and well, that, yeah, I, 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 had, I had, a, had a, that conversation with her happen. Um, like, I went to both of her restaurants when I was there in Copenhagen, and they were, you know, went to the taco stand and her sit-down restaurant, and, like, both were unbelievable. And Al Pastor was one of the best things like I've ever had in my life. But uh, it was like Octopus Al Pastor. But uh, how did the conversation with the two of you happen? Did she say to you, I want to go on my own? Did you tell her it's time? How does that, how does that sort of transition happen in a good, in a good way, uh, as opposed yeah. to a positive way? Usually in the good ways where they happen. Is, uh, honestly, I've only tried once or twice in the 17 years where it's like, what happened here? I, I just don't know what just happened. But most of the time... Right. You know, there's uh, a people that are exceptional and that have a pivotal role at the restaurant. We have a sort of a, a ground rule that they have to help find a replacement. Um, and um, yeah. so, you know, there's a constant conversation, obviously, between these people all the time. I talk to them. I'm, I'm with them every day. But you also have these sit down moments where you're trying to plan ahead. For, for all of you, for the restaurant and, and, you know, the creative work. And there, in, in these moments, you always step by step together, find the right moment that just fits everyone. And it was the same thing that happened to Rocio. She came back from Japan after we did our pop-up in Japan. Right. And she came back and uh, she had already, we'd had many conversations about this idea of opening a Mexican place the taqueria and you know i just gave her some advice to open at the market that had just uh, recently been reopened in copenhagen and we connected her to the owners and you know that's it the rest is history she took over and within four months she had opened a stand and i actually remember on opening day i came by i was so excited and they, it was just a complete uh, mayhem because people were everywhere wanting uh, to try this, uh, this, you know, former sous chef slash uh, head of creativity at Noma, and she was only going to do street food for everyone. And it's been fantastic. I mean, and that that has always been completely. Most of the time, these things they happen with, like for instance, right now we have another uh, cook. Uh, who is uh, ready to um, to leave after having spent like eight years and, and you know already now already like four or five months ago we started the conversation and uh, it's a sort of a year notice and uh, right. and that leaves us uh, enough time to find the replacement to train re- the replacement one of the ground rules 
we have for people is that they, when, with a the replacement, they have to make sure that, a, that the re- replacement don't make the same mistakes as, as they did. They have to actively want them to be better than themselves. That's what I tell people. And, and so we, most of the times it actually, it actually really works. People really do it, you know, and, and uh, it's a very healthy thing to do to have people themselves help find their replacements. I've only had very good experience with it. And does it make you feel great when you walk around, like around your city, and you see all these people who who came through your place and are now set up and and doing their own remarkable things? And I especially think for for for, for you, knowing a bit of your history, you know, um, because you were someone who came from you know Macedonia and and, and ended up in in Copenhagen at, at twelve, and it feels like you didn't have you know I'm fascinated by these narratives so. This huge yeah. community you've built now all over Copenhagen, how you've made Copenhagen a place that you're, everywhere you go, you're so comfortable. And, <laughs> and, and I wonder how much of that you think has to do with the estrangement you felt when you were younger. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think uh, I'm a part of the community building in the restaurant trade here, but it, it, I'm only a part of it. Uh, it's very, very important for me to say this that um, it's people's own decisions to stay in town, to come here, and they build their own world and their own thing, and they become part of the puzzle. And, uh, and so, you know, they contribute uh, to the mass of things. Uh, I, I can't say that it's, uh, that, you know, all of this is because of me or the restaurant, not at all. I think there are many, many factors and um, and yeah, I do feel happy when you take a bike ride through town, and you know you put your hand up maybe ten times because you're saying hello to to people that you worked with or people you have a connection to. It feels good. I I, I mean I really love uh, the feeling of a village, even though we are capital city. We do still have the the sensation of a village, and I would say mostly people are actually very very helpful to each other. I mean, don't get me wrong, they're still competitiveness in town people are still fighting to have their guests and there you know there's also jealousy and people of course uh, start up and i mean it 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 is uh, it is a part of it and and yeah i mean look i uh, i'm uh, I, you know i'm to most people i would probably just look like a dane um but i am not uh 100% dane I was right. raised in a very different way. I was raised in a Muslim household, and um, that can be enough for you to be considered uh, an outsider here in um, in a place that is very, very homogenous, like Denmark, you know. And um, I've, growing up, I always felt like, uh, you know, I live here, and I guess I'm a Dane, and I, you know, and all that stuff. But what is it that makes me not hundred percent understand? what's going on and the people, you know, people, my friends, they would uh, tell me all these bedtime stories they would have as kids and I never had them or this food. Well, I never had that food. I had different foods. And, and um, so, yeah, I, I guess maybe I haven't even, uh, now that you're saying the question the way you did, I haven't thought if, if that's uh, one of the reasons why I, um, I, I liked to have this sense of, of neighborhood uh, from from you know all the cooks and and most of the former staff. Maybe that is a reason why. That's something for me to think of. I, I haven't thought about it like that before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. I'm happy. To, I'm happy to know that I, I prompted that for you because yeah. because when I when I when I think about it, even the question I started with about community about the welcoming because this is the other thing about Noma. So, like, yeah, when you decided no table, because a few years ahead of David Chang reinventing fine dining in America, right? But, mm-hmm. but Dave did it in a very different way than, 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 than you did it. Uh, and the thing about walking into your restaurant is the, the way, the warmth. And it does tie into me. It makes sense. I didn't think of this before the podcast, but even just talking about this, this you know, you not understanding the customs or the ways people did things. Perhaps that's why you make such a point when someone enters your restaurant to make them feel welcome and a part of it and not estranged. In fine dining restaurants, all of us have those moments of feeling uncomfortable. 
even someone like me, I've eaten in, you know, I've had the opportunity to eat more good restaurants and friends with more chefs. But still, there's that moment if you go to some place in France, you're uncomfortable for a second. Uh, you don't yep. feel like you belong. And you've endeavored, it seems, Renee, to give everybody this sense of belonging. And it's funny that it's from somebody who felt he didn't fit in or didn't belong. It, it makes a kind of sense in a way, right? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's a good analysis of, <laughs> of, uh, of things, definitely. I mean, you know, Dave, he and myself, you know, we're very good friends. And, and I, you yeah. know, if there's one person that's the most successful of our entire generation, it is by far Dave Chang. There's nothing that even comes close to David Chang. He is so outrageously smart and successful. And uh, he has just done so many things to better uh, food that uh, people just forget or don't even uh, know or maybe refuse to understand or accept. Um, But, you know, we also, it's two restaurants in two different places. Like I bring a European tradition shaking that up a little bit with a Nordic, uh, through the eyes of, of a Nordic uh, sort of democracy and, and you know, um, uh, the lens uh, of, of an of a immigrant to this place. And, and Dave Chang, you know, in New York City, the urban, I mean, the power he brought to the table, the energy, the, like, yeah. uh, stripping away all the formality, just focusing on on the food and the energy. I mean, it was just fantastic. I'll never forget the first time I went to Momofuku Sambar mm-hmm. and Wiley Dufresne actually told me, hey, you should go there. This is really something. Uh, and I sat in the bar uh, with Nadine, my wife, and all this food started showing up. And I'm like, oh, excuse me, we haven't ordered this food. And then, you know, back then in, in Europe, there was no real sort of that VIP treatment. And then uh, the chef right. looks up and says, it's okay, chef. We know who you are. <laughs> and nice. that was the first real VIP moment of my life. And, of course, it happened in America, in New York City, at David Chan's oh, restaurant. Oh, that's so great. I didn't know that story. That's fantastic. Well, you know, uh, yeah. I, Dave will tell you, but I, I, went into, I went into Noodle. I was in the Noodle Bar the first three months it opened, when it was, and I was there all the time, and I became. So I've like kind of known Dave since then. And watch, but... but but as you know, his thing was not exactly about making people feel welcome or warm. It was a very different thing. How, uh, here's a question. The only way I know Macedonia is by the movie Before the Rain, which I love that movie. Mm-hmm. How, which I'm sure you've seen that, or I imagine you've seen that movie, right? Uh, uh, I have And Oh, you should, I guess it's from right after, it's like from right after you left, maybe 94 or something like that. But mm-hmm. how, um, how different was your life there? than the life in in Copenhagen. How much were you in nature? Is that where this idea of being someone in nature and finding food g- came to you? How, how did it inform your point of view, do you think? Yeah. So first of all, you know, my mother, she is a, a native Dane, and uh, my uh, father and my mother, they actually met in uh, in Denmark. And my uh, mother was a cashier at a cafeteria, and my father was a dishwasher. And um, they met and fell in love. And my mother, she sort of uh, uh, took the customs of, of of native Albanians, which my family they are, and learned the language and dressed uh, the traditional part. And uh, they also made a house in in uh, back then. It was called Yugoslavia, and. Um, right before the war broke it up into all the different states that they are today. And so, um, so you know, I, ha- I have sort of always known that I have two homes, but I always considered my home to be in what was Yugoslavia or Macedonia. That was sort of my identity for a long time. It was when we were in Denmark and, you know, my father and mother, they would work, but it was only so that we could support the life in, in uh, uh, Yugoslavia. Um, where people uh, lived practically from nothing. You know, it was like there was, yeah. would be water two hours a day, and it was in a you know small a little uh, village at the foothill of a, of a mountain, and uh, people lived um, very rural uh, with little electricity, manual labor, no refrigerators, 
you know, all that stuff would, wow. would just exist. If you needed a glass of milk, you went uh, to the stable and milked a cow. And uh, if you wanted chicken, you slaughtered one and so on and so on. So for me, this is a part of me. And I remember as a, as a child, particularly when we went to Denmark and particularly when we, uh, because of the war, really 110% moved to Denmark and that now yeah. was our home. And my parents said, this is us now. Here we are. Um, I remember being so ashamed of that uh, life because, you know, in Denmark, people are so affluent oh. and they would go to France and do all these things. And we'd be in Macedonia riding a donkey or something, you know. Um, and, <laughs> yes. yeah, we'd just be at the fields and watch all the, all the adults work while we were picking chestnuts or blackberries. And only later on I understood how much it has informed everything I do in my professional life, even in my private life, you know. This um, intuition that drives you into uh, the nature that drove me when Noma first opened into finding my culinary voice through uh, through foraging. That is where I fa- found some connection to the landscape here that then again gave me a sort of a cooking voice. Um, and that all comes from, from just being out in it uh, from a small age, uh, from, from a young age. And, you know, I'll tell you that I used to laugh at all the French chefs I would read interviews with them in, in the old magazines, and they all had this grandmother story. Oh, I used to cook with my grandmother, and, yeah. uh, you know, her poulet was the best, and that's why I'm a cook today. And I was like, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it's so uh, so romantic, almost melodramatic, you know, the way they explained yeah, it. And, and, yeah. uh, and uh, I would be like, yawn, and then I realized, damn, my story is kind of the same. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> the same story. Of course. I have this from my childhood that I just brought with me. And if you have these uh, very um, positive things uh, that that you you know you you uh, associate with something positive, it might stay with you for the rest of your life. And with me, it has so far, at least. Do you remember what the first? Uh, you know, one of the things I love to do is watch your Instagram, or particularly when you go to a new place, like the, all the Tulum stuff was just incredible. But that thing, mm-hmm. when you cut into something and try it for the first time, and it's clear you're having a genuine experience where if something really hits you the right way, you're messianic about it. You can't wait to spread the word. You can't wait to... What's the first thing you remember where you, you ate something and it lit you up that way, where you were a fire about it? Do you know what I mean? A flame about mm-hmm. it. Can, yeah. can you remember a moment? Yeah. Oh, yeah, tell me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can uh, remember several moments. I mean, you know, there's my adult moments, and then there are my childhood moments. And my childhood moments, it would be uh, at uh, my my family. They were watermelon farmers. So one of the most favorite things for me in the, in the entire planet is watermelon. Ice cold watermelon without too many seeds in it. The flesh firm, you know, the sound of that crackling as your knife just basically touches it. And it just falls apart. Oi! I mean, the best quote uh, I know for food, I can't remember who did it, but it's, it's watermelon, you eat, you drink, and you wash your face. And I, I genuinely love ah. that with, uh, with, uh, with watermelon. And so for me, every time I have a, a watermelon, even today, although to, in these days you can't find anything that, that even rivals um, the childhood Macedonian watermelon, but I had this moment where we are, it's in the beginning of watermelon harvest. And when watermelon were ready to harvest in Macedonia, uh, the families that owned the fields, they would camp out at the fields to protect them so that, you know, people wouldn't steal the ripe watermelons and sell yeah. them off. And uh, it was one of the most favorite things for me to do as a child because you, they would make up this sort of, mock house on stilts so you could oversee uh, the fields and there would be campfires and you know there'd be singing and oh it was sort of a my father and his uh, uncle and all my cousins would be there and best of all we just eat watermelon you know they'd go out uh, into the fields sun-ripe watermelons 
and the sound of the crackling, the smell of the flowers, and it's just, I love watermelon. I just genuinely, genuinely love watermelon. <laughs> and and that, that's, um, I had the same thing with blackberries too. I love blackberries because we would, um, when, they, when the adults would work on the fields, and, uh, you know, have this heavy burden of, of, like, manual labor. And we'd walk around the edges of, of, uh, of the rural landscape. And, and um, you know, at the end of summer or the beginning of fall, I guess, when, when there would be plentiful of raspberries, or excuse me, uh, blackberries, we could stand for hours and eat, and eat um, blackberries. I also have a similar story with cherries. Uh, because there was a cherry tree, and I could I would climb it, and I would sit for hours, and just eat uh, cherries. And you know, I when I was a child, I could I could just see which would be the perfect one from the shape or how uh, they were hanging. I, I you know, you learned yourself this. That's a good one. You could see sort of from the heaviness, or I don't know what it was. I can't do it today, but I used to be able to do it as a child, and so. Those are incredible moments. And then I have these pivotal moments uh, as a young adult, or I should say a uh, young cook, where, you know, 25, 26 years old, no more is opening, and um, we're out in the landscape. And at that time in, in Scandinavia, it was sort of very like, you know, uh, kind of like uh, the cold north, uh, beets and onions and rutabaga, you know, we thought that that's our larder. That's what we have to cook with. We didn't really know what was out there. And then I've told this story a few times, but it it, it is a it is one of the first moments when you're like blown away and you realize yeah. that tell it. You can tell there's it. a yeah. lot of things. That, yeah, but so we're out there uh, on a beach. It's early spring, and uh, beaches in Denmark they're a little bit whatever you know <laughs> let's just say like say like that they're not like your californian beaches or or anything like that and so um it's early spring it's still kind of cold we're walking through all this rotting seaweed uh, with our wellingtons on or rubber boots and suddenly there's this patch of green and we walk towards it and it's not just seagrass it looks like chives and you know as you snap it it has almost the same sound as when as when you cut into a watermelon that sort of deep uh, sound like you know um, and uh, intuitively we just put it in our mouths and eat it and uh, not something I would recommend uh, by the way for people right. listening yes. to this don't just randomly don't do, do that yes agreed no no you can actually really get into a lot of trouble and you know if you eat the right. wrong things you can even you can even get into a lot of trouble but we did it yeah, I bite into that, it sure. and then it's it is uh, I can't remember the name of it in, in English uh, but in Danish, it's called Strandtreheer. It's a, <laughs> not the most uh, appetizing or easy on the tongue name, but it is uh, a beach plant that grows uh, out there on the, on the beaches, some places through uh, best, if it's best, through the rotting seaweed. And it tastes exactly like cilantro or coriander because it has the same mm. chemical compound in it. Um, and, you know, obviously you're there on this cold windblown beach in uh, on a corner uh, of of uh, you know near Copenhagen, and you're thinking to yourself, "Damn, I mean, we have coriander. That's a part of our uh, of our flavor profile right. too." Now you that's know, part of flavor wheel. I can bring that in. Yeah, I mean, for us, it was like at that time, 17 years ago, coriander was still like heavily exotic. <laughs> it was a uh, Thai cuisine, or you know, maybe Mexican food, but you didn't really see it on yeah. a regular basis. Danes weren't certainly cooking with it at home, not at all like they are today. Today, everybody's growing it, so we can get coriander. I don't need to go to the beach to have a coriander flavor. I can go to the beach now to have a, a you know, a salty coriander flavor with a different texture to it. But it was just one of those moments where you're like, okay, this is this is on. You know, if coriander grows through rotting seaweed, um, there's more out there, and and it was a big well, push. Well, I'll tell you, I I know um, that uh, I have, there's so much more I can ask you, but I actually know you have service, so I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go, Renee, on this on this note. I, I love the notion of of you sitting up. The, where I'm gonna leave in, in my head, the notion of you in this little uh, temporary house on stilts, 
looking over the watermelon fields and eating watermelon as uh, a, a way that, that would have let somebody looking at that know that this was a possible life you could have, this one. It's just a beautiful image, man. I, I had never heard that before, and I, I love it. And uh, yeah. thank you for doing what you do. You're a constant, I'll say as an artist, you're a constant inspiration, man. Watching what you're able to do, uh, it inspires. I, I know you know that you inspire people in, the, in your industry, but you should know you're an inspiration of people who try to do creative work everywhere. And I would, anyone listening should... Watch the documentaries about you. They should read Jeff Gordonaire's book. They should try to come to Noma if they can, and um, they should follow you on, on on social media because you're very generous there. So thank you for doing this, man. Have a great service tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you, and be well and be positive. <laughs>